Guys, marriage has been in the news. I'm sure you're aware it'd be hard not to be the last several years because as a culture, we've been trying to redefine really our identity, sexual identity, family identity, what it means to be a husband or a wife, a spouse, what a family is, redefining all of that. Um, we're going to be using marriage this morning, so we want to put all that aside. We're going to be looking at marriage from God's viewpoint in the scriptures. And that's a jumping off point to look at something that's more important than marriage. And before we start, I do want to say this. As we talk about God's view of marriage, God's call on us in marriage, almost without possibility otherwise, some of us will feel pangs uh, of conviction or guilt or regret about our own marriage, things we've done, haven't done, past marriages, whatever. If that's the case, uh, God bless you. Take that, confess, pray, whatever's helpful. I say that on the front end because I don't want you to lose, as you're, if you're thinking about past failures, I don't want you to lose where we're going with the message itself, okay? So we're talking about God's view of marriage, but that becomes the platform or the lens by which we're talking about something more important than marriage. So on the front and the back end, that's where we'll be. So just consider for a minute... A man and a woman joined together uniquely, think of a wedding, that's the setting we'll be in here for just a little bit. As husband and wife, they're forming one new family, they are to each other in all the world unique. No matter how many other men or husbands there are in the world, for that one wife, there's only one man, there's only one husband. No matter how many other women or wives there may be in the world, for that one husband, there's only one wife, one significant other. They're absolutely and uniquely each other's. They are dedicated solely to the other. Now, in saying this, we're saying uniquely. We're not saying they don't have responsibilities in other relationships, children or other family or friends, but nothing approaches the unique nature of their call to each other in that marriage. Nothing else is meant to come through or disrupt that unique relationship. In fact, guys, they're so fully each other's that God says they're no longer two individuals, but they're one new entity, Genesis 2.24. And in fact, they are so fully, um, I say this advisedly, but the possession of each other, they belong to each other so fully that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.4, they don't even own their own bodies. Their body belongs to their spouse. So this is a complete giving over of themselves to the other. It's dedication. And in fact, that union is such a big deal for them, and it's such a big deal to their relatives and to the culture that they live in, that it's formalized by a wedding ceremony, typically formalized by a wedding ceremony. What I want to do, guys, at this point, I'm just going to read from the book of... I'm getting nothing. Guys, it's... Thank you. I want to read from the book of Common Prayer. So, you know, if you go to a wedding, the vows may come from any time or age. Hard to say what would be included or not. But this is from the Book of Common Prayer. But just, we'll go through this slowly. There's no hurry. And just listen to the words, and they reflect the call, and of course, just in great, great language. Dear, And I won't read the whole thing, but I'm going to read excerpts. Dearly beloved, we are gathered together here in the sight of God and in the face of this congregation to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony, which is an honorable estate, instituted of God in the time of man's innocency, 
signifying to us the mystical union that is between Christ and his church. A little later, the groom is addressed, will you have this woman to your wedded wife? Will you be bound to this woman to live together after God's ordinance in the holy estate of matrimony? Will you love her, comfort her, honor and keep her? in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, keep you only to her so long as you both shall live. Then similarly, addressing the bride, will you have this man to your wedded husband to live together after God's ordinance in the holy estate of matrimony? Will you obey him and serve him love, honor, and keep him in sickness and in health and forsaking all others. Keep you only to him so long as you both shall live. Then a little later, and this goes back and forth, of course, as you know, I take you to be my wedded wife or husband, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, richer, or poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death us do part, according to God's holy ordinance, and thereto I pledge my troth, or my loyalty, or my faithfulness in truth. And then concluding with these words, with this ring I thee wed, two separate persons become one new entity, I am wed, I am bonded to you. With my body, I thee worship. I am physically and totally yours. With all my worldly goods, I thee endow. All that I have is yours. I am fully yours. All that I have is yours. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. So you get those wedding vows and you realize what this holy and total dedication to each other looks like. This relationship is meant to be all-encompassing. It excludes any other similar intimacy. And you guys know in relationships you'll have, there's a line at which you can feel you might be approaching when you express affection to someone of the opposite sex and you realize, I can't go beyond this point. It would be inappropriate. Those kinds of intimacies or familiarities are only for my spouse. Faithfulness requires wholehearted, singular devotion to that singular spouse. So, total dedication. I lose all my other options for joys and privilege in this singular call and all that it provides and entails. So, this is a big deal. Guys, this is such a big deal. I was reading in Matthew this morning, and when the disciples heard about the singular call in marriage, that it was to be for life, they lived in a divorce culture like our own. They said, well, if that's it, we should not get married. If, we're the, if this is lifelong and we're really th that stuck, they said, we just shouldn't get married. And then Jesus addresses that. But you can see how total the call is. With my body, I love the words, with my body, I worship you. All my worldly goods are yours. I, body and soul, all that I have, all that I am is yours. That's the call in marriage. It's mind-numbing, really. That's a scary thing, right? Which one of us, when we got married, knew what we were in for, right? What the real cost was, right? It's that high a call. 
So, so take that call to marriage, all-encompassing, singular devotion to that other person. Take that call. That's our lens. Now elevate that call, if we can do that in our minds, elevate that singular devotion and call, and we begin to approach what God has called us to in our relationship with Him. A greater bond, a greater dedication, a more singular focus and dedication than even in marriage. That's the call you and I have in our relationship with God. And in a word, this is called, this is an old-fashioned term you don't hear much anymore, but it's called consecration. Consecration. Con is with and, and a secretion is sacred. We are to be, you and I as Christians, as those who have called on the name of God through Jesus, we are to be consecrated. We are to be joined with God in this sacred, dedicated union we have through His covenant love for us. When you read that term in an English translation, it is translating kadosh, sacred from the Hebrew, or hagios from the Greek in the New Testament. But it's the same thought that we are uniquely set apart, dedicated, consecrated entirely to God, for God. Body and soul, all our positions, everything that we are and have. God calls His people to be in a relationship with Him that transcends and surpasses the devotion of marriage, a singular dedication of all that we are and have, every possibility for our lives to be freely, joyously given over to Him <clears throat> and for him we're still in our series foundation thanks ben uh, this is the sixth and second to, to last of the seven key concepts doctrines teachings we've been looking at and what does it mean for us to fulfill jesus words in matthew 7 that the wise person who builds his house on the rock is the one who takes in the truth of god's word and does it and what does that look like for us in the context of consecration, of God's call on your life and mine to be singularly devoted to Him. What does it look like to take in that truth, that call, and live it out? In looking at this, we're going to start in probably the key New Testament passage we've got on the subject of consecration. It's Romans 12. We'll get there in just a minute. And then we want to go back and we want to sort of emotionally charge that call by looking again at God's call in relation to a marriage covenant. So I can't do any justice to this this morning in, in, in trying to summarize um, Romans before you get to chapter 12. But what you've got in Romans is you've got 11 chapters of theology and then you've got four chapters of application. So before chapter 12, Paul's developed all this theology. We've talked about a little bit of this recently. Everybody's guilty before God. If he judges us based on our sin, we're all toast. We're going down. But Jesus has provided this atoning sacrifice. We receive that sacrifice, that reconciliation to God through faith. Jesus becomes our second Adam. Now what he is, we are. Before we got what our first father Adam got. Now we've got a second spiritual source of new life. We've got the spirit and we've got the word, the law of the spirit of life in Christ. Jesus helps us transcend who and what we were in the past. And you see, this loyal covenant love, the uh, end of chapter 8, is nothing can separate us from the love of God. And then you got chapters 9, 10, and 11, which Paul brings up Israel. And you say, well, God's electing, sovereign, unrepentant love means Israel's saved forever just like you're saved forever. So you got all this great doctrine. 
And after Paul lays all that down, at the end of chapter 11, it's fairly amazing. You know, Paul dictated his letters, right? Somebody else wrote them down. And I think as he's talking about this stuff, I think he just can't help himself. He just explodes in this psalm of praise. He is so excited about what he said. So that when he turns from that in chapter 12 to now say, in light of who God is, his goodness to us, the glory that we've got coming in him, what should our response be? And that's chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And this is what he says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, or some translations say reasonable service. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So when Paul, when he turns from, this is what's true about God and about you and your future with him, and he says, now what are the implications for you to live out? He says, guys, you should see your life as an animal that's put on the altar and dedicated entirely to God. This would be an odd thing for us in our mind, right? A carcass on an altar in a fire. But for them, this was normal, right? If you were a Jew, this was what was going on at the temple all the time. But if you were a Gentile, this was part and parcel of your life of idolatry as well. You were used to seeing an animal. And the picture here is the Old Testament called a burnt offering, sometimes called a whole burnt offering. In Judaism, most of the offerings that were put on the altar, only a portion of the animal was sacrificed. The priest took some, or the worshiper took some, or both took some. But in this burnt offering, the whole thing was for God and God alone. And so when you put that carcass on the altar, nobody else got any of it. It was entirely for God. And you were saying, Lord, I'm entirely yours. All that I am is yours. All that I have is yours. Just like that animal on the altar. And that's the picture Paul draws on here to believers who've come to know God through faith in Christ. He says, guys, this is the call on your life. It's to see yourself as that offering on the altar and all that you are and all that you have, your future, your past, your present, they all belong to God. Body and soul, you're his. Body and soul, you're his. He says in light of who God is, what he's done for us, in light of the great salvation, our future glory with him, the only thing that makes sense for us to do is to offer ourselves to God, body and soul, present and future, fully and unreservedly, more so even than a husband or a wife can commit himself or herself to the other. And when you think of this, when Jesus is asked, what's the great commandment? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's this. That everything that you are and have should be committed to God and his use and his glory. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus says, if you love husband or wife, brother or sister, mother or father, more than me, you're not worthy of me. And remember what the call to the bonds of marriage are. They're total. But they're still subservient to God's call on us. So he uses that imagery of an animal sacrifice. When the offerer put that on the altar, they were saying, I am yours. Everything I have is yours. All that I am, Lord, is yours. Or in the imagery of marriage, 
we say, with our wills, Lord, we wed ourselves to you in this holy consecration. Or, Lord, we use our bodies and all that they do as a means of worshiping you. Or we put, Lord, at your disposal every worldly good or possession we have. We and everything we are, everything we have, Lord, is yours. We are meant to be solely, totally, devotedly God's, or in that singular word, consecrated. When Paul brings this up in Romans 12, guys, this was not new. When you go back through the Old Testament, you see that God always called those in covenant with him to this total life of consecration. You know, he told Abraham, I think it's Genesis 18, Abraham, you walk before me in righteousness. You're walking as my representative. We're walking in fellowship with each other. When he institutes the covenant with Israel, you remember Israel is consecrated as a nation to God. Every firstborn was consecrated to God. If it was an animal, it was sacrificed or it was redeemed through sacrifice. The priesthood was uniquely God's as well, consecrated to God's. In the Old Testament, you see that, but you also see the same thing in the New Testament in Ephesians 5. So consecration is not new. It's what God has always called those in covenant relationship with him to be and to do. Now, that Romans 12, it's kind of the language of ought and should. So it's as if Paul is saying, so this is what's true. And so this is what you ought to do. In fact, he says it's your reasonable service. This is the way you should worship God. So it's the language of you ought to do this, you should do this. And you know, there's, there's a problem with that language uh, if you take that far enough along. If I tell you you ought to do something, how long does that motivate you to do it? How long does duty and responsibility push you and I to faithfulness? I ought to do that, I should do that, and so I do it. How long does that last? Imagine this. Imagine a wife saying to her husband at the marriage altar, I marry you because I know I should. Imagine a husband saying to a wife, I protect you and provide for you because it's my duty. Worse, imagine a spouse saying to the other, I'm willing to endure physical intimacy with you because it's required. We've known couples like this, by the way. Yeah. So in those... What would the person on the receiving end of that kind of communication feel? Don't bother, I would say. That's not what I'm after. And that's not what God's after. Mere duty is not what God's after. And what these kind of responses, or guys, simply lives lived, even if this isn't expressed verbally or even consciously, lives lived like this lack love, they lack affection, they lack passion. They lack devotion. None of the personal nature of this emotional attachment is expressed out of mere, mere duty or responsibility. Being dutiful, being responsible is a great thing as far as it goes. But in the bonds of marriage or in our consecration to God, it doesn't go nearly far enough. If consecration to God is seen only as a duty, it feels like a responsibility to be born, a duty to discharge, a debt to be paid. We do it because we should. If we understand that wholehearted, body-consuming devotion to God is the means of our joy, as well as God's glory, it takes on a whole new aspect. And I'm convinced 
that most of us are living lives well below the level at which God means us to because we are pursuing a life of Christian duty, but not affection. Not affection, and affection's a big deal. When you read Paul's life, guys, do you not find that this is the case? The culture we're in mocks the whole concept of holiness or consecration. Uh, it's mocked. So don't you find that as Christians, oftentimes in our own minds, there's some sense in which we think to be holy is sort of this backward thing and by which we lose out on something. That holiness is a call to be different, but it's without benefit. So if you read Paul's life, that's not what you see, right? And this guy was consecrated. He was dedicated and devoted to God. So you read him in Philippians 3 and 4. He not only says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, but he says, anything I've lost for the sake of Christ, I count as worthless, as garbage, because of what I've gained in Christ. Or when you read him in 2 Corinthians from about chapter 9 on, here's a guy who's experienced God. He traveled to the third paradise. He's seen things. He said, I can't even talk about them. He is so jazzed about God that the sufferings he endured, which were many and varied, he says it's, it's no big deal. It's a light thing. Because what I gained in Christ, he was a holy guy, devoted, consecrated to God. And what you see is not somebody who's dour. You see a joy-filled life and existence. This is where I think we lose. Romans 12.1, Paul says, because all these things are true, you ought, you should live this consecrated life. But he follows it immediately with verse 2. He says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If our mind isn't renewed, if we don't develop a taste for God and God's things, consecration to God remains a duty and not a delight. And guys, I think this is where most of Christianity, at least in the West, is living today. We say, Lord, I'm saved, and I'm really glad for that. And Lord, I know I ought to live for you. I know I should love you, but I'm not there. And I say, well, at that level, I think it's because our minds are unrenewed. We don't have holy affections for God because we still have the same old thoughts. That's the problem. I think for most of us Christians, we lack the kind of affections Jonathan Edwards talked about because our minds are still stuck on the old ways of thinking. We still value the same things the way we did before regeneration. The truth of God's word have not displaced those. Our minds are unrenewed. And so consecration is a duty. It's not a joy and a delight. This is the thing about a wedding and a marriage. And it's also true about a relationship with God. You don't get the joys and the delights of marriage until you say, I do. Until you make the commitment. Until you consecrate yourself. And most of us live a life of sort of illicit pleasures because though we are meant to be consecrated to God, we're not living that way. And we wonder why our lives aren't filled with more joy and more peace. But that's why. Because we're meant to be consecrated, but it's not the way we live. Now, I talked to a guy who got married recently. I hope, this is your experience, if you talk to someone who got married recently and you say, how is it? I hope they jump up and say, man, it's great. I'm so glad I got married, right? You know, you talk to the engaged, they can't wait till they get married. 
You know, because then it's the union. Then the, the walls are down. We are one. Physically, emotionally, we live in the same place. We go to sleep with each other. We wake up with each other. We eat together. We're loving this, right? The guy, and I'm just focusing on a guy now. The guy that got married lost freedom and independence. He lost it. But he's glad he lost it for what he gained. He can't have the joys and the pleasures of his wife's company without leaving every other woman behind and every other option for his life. He has drawn a line in the sand. Everything after that has changed. That husband knows, we hope, that what's gained makes the loss seem small. His affections for his wife make consecration to her in marriage a noble, glad thing, not merely duty. The consecration opens the door to the pleasures of marriage. Christians are meant to be wedded to Christ. We'll talk about this in just a minute. But we want to live as if we're Jesus part-time and we're ours the other part-time. That's not consecration. And we wonder why our relationship with God isn't more fulfilling. Why our life is as untransformed as it is. We've sort of said we do but we're sort of hanging out on our own still. We're trying to live a life in two different phases that simply doesn't work. The more we know of God in His goodness and person, the more we experience of His eternal delights, the less consecration feels like a burden to be borne and instead, like Paul experienced, is a cost gladly paid for the pleasures, the joy, and the peace to be found in God's holy presence. By the way, you know, one of my, what you see in the New Testament, state-of-the-art church in the New Testament is Ephesus. Uh, it's in Acts. They got a, their own letter. First Timothy is, Timothy is in Ephesus, and they get the first of the seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3. They are state-of-the-art. And, you know, my aspiration is to be like Ephesus. And, and when Jesus writes them, he says, man, you guys are doing some great things. And he says, you're key on doctrine and teaching, on truth. You know what I've said. You know to hold, how to hold that up and, and discover counterfeits. You're committed to the truth. And he said, and you persevere. You keep going. You keep being faithful. You're working away at the things I've given you to do. And that's good too. So they're state of the art. They're faithful in the word. They're, they're pushing through in all the things they're called to do. And then Jesus makes this radical statement. He says, but you're going to cease to exist as a church if you don't change your ways because you have left your first love. And he says basically simply, I won't have it. You're not going to pretend to be mine in word and deed, but that I don't hold your heart and your affections. He simply says, I'm not going to have it. So he says, repent and do the things you did at first. You know, if you've been married, and hopefully this, that was your experience, we got married, and man, it's all we could think about was being together. Well, it's like you take that attitude and that commitment you have to each other and that's what you regenerate. That's what you bring back to bear. Jesus says performance and duty aren't enough. He rejected the formalities of faithfulness when the heart was lacking. Why does a husband stray from his wife? Or why does a wife stray from her husband? Or why does a Christian stray from their God? It's because... The affection of the heart isn't set on their beloved. 
They're living a dual life. Their affections are torn. They are split. When I grew up, I thought that jealousy was the same as envy. And I'll bet this is the way you've seen it used, heard it used too. In fact, do a search. Uh, jealousy is the green-eyed monster too, just like envy. envy. Envy and jealousy are not synonyms. So I'm not to be envious. And that's where I have this unholy desire for something God gave someone else, not me. That's envy. Jealousy is another thing altogether. Jealousy is the holy desire to uniquely possess what is uniquely mine. And God says he is jealous. He is jealous over us, over those who are uniquely his. He doesn't apologize for that. And we are to be jealous for him. Marital unfaithfulness and its cousin spiritual idolatry are as grievous as they are because they betray the singular devotion due one from the other. When you look at God's relationship with Israel in the Old Testament, he describes it as a marital relationship. This is sometimes hard for guys. I read a great article on this recently. Guys, you don't have to think like a woman or become a woman in your emotions or your affections to take this in. That we're the bride, you know, or that Israel's the bride, God's the groom. The, the, the thought is the singular devotion or consecration. Just a couple examples, Isaiah 54, 5. God said to Israel, your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The creator of the universe is your husband. That's who I am to you. Or Jeremiah 3.20 negatively, surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel. God says I'm in this covenant relationship with you. It's meant to be unique. You're supposed to be jealous over me. I'm jealous over you. And yet you betray that trust all the time. If you read the books, Ezekiel and Hosea, they're more on that same theme. That's not New Testament. That's Old Testament. And then when you get to Ephesians 5, that key text on this in the New Testament, then you see Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her, that he might make her holy, that he might consecrate her. Cleansed by washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Jesus is calling us into that covenant embrace just like God did to Israel in the Old Testament. Same imagery. It's the only thing that was close enough to provide a lens to understand what God wanted us to know, what our relationship with him is meant to be like. Singular, devoted, all-consuming, to be protected at all costs. That was the call. The, the book in the Old Testament of Song of Songs is, it's a hard book on one hand. If you ever read it, people read it and it's like, who's talking? Is this the bride or the groom? Is this the crowd? And, and what's the setting? And it doesn't really follow a, a straight line narrative. It's a little hard to grasp. But you get these sections where you say, man, that's great. Because it's the love story. It's, it's sort of the bride and the groom pursuing each other to the marriage and the wedding bed, and it's the joy they have in each other. And in that context, listen to the language here. Song of Songs 2.16, and of course all of this, this is really true for couples, right? This is Solomon. It's the guy who celebrates love and sexual union in Proverbs as well as in this song. So it's true at the human level, but then you extrapolate that, it becomes the lens by which we see the same kind of relationship we're meant to have with God. The bride says, my beloved is mine and I am his. He's mine, I'm his. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. 
She gets it, doesn't she? I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. That's jealousy. Now it gets even better at the end in chapter 8. Listen to this because it, it puts this in perspective. The bride speaking to the groom says this. Set me as a seal on your heart. Set me as a seal on your arm. You know, we wear wedding, wedding rings, right? That's like a seal. And everybody that sees that wedding ring knows they belong to someone. Well, the bride says to the groom, set me as a seal on your heart. You're mine and I'm yours. And put it on your arm where everybody can see it. I'm mine. And I'm yours and you're mine. We belong to each other. You're taken. My wife used to tell me I'd take my ring off for work so it wouldn't get in the way. She'd say, you need to put that back on. You're taken. And that's what communicates that. That's the thought here. She continues, love is as strong as death. What in life can combat death? Nothing, right? Spirit, we're not talking about resurrection here. Nobody can fight death. Nobody wins against death. But she says, love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. As all-encompassing or as all-powerful as death in the grave appeared to be, love is equal to that, she says. It's flashes, love's flashes, love's passions. It's flashes are flashes of fire, and not just any fire, the very flame of Yahweh. God uniquely inhabits this love. These aren't just mere mortal feelings or passions. God inhabits this kind of self-giving, self-receiving love. Many waters can't quench love. Neither can floods drown it. You can't put this thing out. The devotion of the beloved is all-encompassing. Nothing can get rid of it. And she concludes with this. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. The thought that you could trade something for Yahweh's love is a despicable thought, she says. It is so all-encompassing that not, you could never pay for it. It can only be given. That's the kind of attitude that we're meant to have in this consecrated relationship we're called to have with God through faith in Jesus. The, it cannot be quenched. You can't buy it, but it can be given. It's the very flame of the Lord. God has a holy jealousy over us, and we are meant to have that same kind of thought towards him. Consecration enables us to know and enjoy God in ways we never can without that kind of singular devotion. God is the source of every pleasure. To know him is to know eternal delights. God is the source of all wisdom and knowledge to be devoted to him is to know all that's worth knowing. God is the most unique, interesting, worthwhile person in the universe. To be consecrated to him is a never ending and growing experience of all that can really be called life. And just as there are pleasures and delights that only the married can enjoy in and with each other, there are pleasures and delights in a consecrated relationship with God that simply cannot be known otherwise. If we lose anything due to consecration to God, it's not worth keeping. What we gain in consecration to God cannot be had by any other means. 
So a life lived on the rock of God's word in this arena of consecration is to live a consecrated life to God. And really, at the end of the day, it really means getting past a double-mindedness. And it means saying, I do, in an all-encompassing way. Work through just a few questions. Just thinking, what does this look like? So if I take the truth of God's word, I'm called to a consecrated life. What does that look like? What does it require of me? What does it look like to implement this? The first is simply, have I accepted God's invitation to join him in a holy union? Have I said yes to God's offer of matrimony, as it were, by repenting of my sins and accepting the reconciliation he's provided in Jesus Christ? Have I simply said yes? So the offer of forgiveness and eternal life with Christ my Savior and God as my Father. That's the one that matters, right? <laughs> There's lots of discussion today about Pauline theology and what justification and a lot of other things mean. Uh, none of that will matter if you're not in heaven. We all just Forget all of it. We just want to know, are we there? That's the thing that matters. If I've come to faith in Christ, have I acknowledged that God's free gift of grace in salvation introduces me to the costly life of self-denying consecration. You talk about all this, about this all the time. Uh, salvation is absolutely free. And we want to be careful when we talk about this. Salvation is absolutely free. You can't do anything to gain, to earn, to add to your salvation. It's impossible. It's absolutely free. However, once we're saved, once we're wed or we're married, it costs us everything, not salvation, but that relationship now is meant to be all-encompassing. Whether you say discipleship, Jesus says to be my disciple, you've got to follow me in death. Cruciform living costs you everything. Sonship costs us everything. But a wedding, a marriage costs us everything. That's okay. It's a cost that should be joyfully borne because of all that we get out of it. So if that's the case, what do we do? What areas of life have I consciously consecrated to God? Most of us live uh, compartmentalized lives, um, which means we sort of see life in different categories, or I've got this part of my life, and I've got that part of my life. And there's a sense in which that's um, handy for us because it allows us to focus on one thing and then another. But there's another way in which it's a really deficient form of living, we are or we are not consecrated to God. If we're partway consecrated, we're not consecrated. You know, a woman is really pregnant or she's really not. There's no in between. And that's true of consecration as well. So while we talk about this because it's convenient, a consecrated life means it's all of us. We're all in. But as we review our life, it's helpful to break that up a little bit. What areas of life have I consciously consecrated to God? We might look and we might say, Lord, I know I've given this thing or that thing up to you. I know that I'm good with you in this as far as I know to be in the moment. But we might also say, what areas of my life do I need to consecrate to God? This is where most of us live, isn't it? That there's some things where I've said, Look, Lord, Lord, this is all yours. And there's other areas where I say, but this is mine. And this, don't mess with this, Lord. Leave, leave this for me. Have everything else, but I just want this little thing, this little corner of my life where I continue to live and do and think as I please. What are the areas where God's putting his finger on and saying, I, I want that? Uh, your affections are divided. I want that. 
thinking like a spouse too, what areas of my life do I need to consciously, conscientiously install barriers or hedges so that I'm not walking into temptations by which I end up in spiritual adultery? Remember that for us to live an unconsecrated life in God's language is spiritual adultery. So we want to call this what God calls it, spiritual unfaithfulness. What do I need to do in my life? What barriers do I need to erect to wisely avoid temptations that might lead to my spiritual adultery? What would that mean? When Kathy and I meet with couples, almost always we say, on a scale of 1 to 10, where's your marriage? 1 is hell on earth. One is heaven on earth. Ten is heaven on earth. Where, is you, where are you in there? You know, and if they say six, let's say, we say, okay, so why is it a six positively? What are the things that make it a six? And then we say negatively, why isn't it an eight, a nine, or a ten? What are the areas that we can improve here? We can bring that same mindset here. How do I rate my experience of my life with God today? What is it? And positively, why is that? But negatively, why isn't that better or higher? What areas might I need to work on so that I simply get to both honor God more fully and experience Him more fully as well? So what would help me delight more fully in the Lord? If we're going to enjoy with the Lord the kind of joys that a husband and a wife have with each other, we have to say, I do. We have to be consecrated to the other, and then we have to live that way. And most of us are trying to live like we're half married and half single. And that's just a contradiction in terms. A consecrated life is living life on the rock. And guys, you will never regret being too consecrated to God. You'll never regret being too dedicated to God and His things. What we get is more life. If you find that you're obedient to God and you're not experiencing life, I suspect it's a form of formalism and duty and responsibility, but it's not out of the affection of the heart. The more we give ourselves to God, the more God gives himself to us. So the consecrated life is not a life that we've lost. It's a life in which we've gained. Father, would you help us to see you more fully in your glory and your desirability. Lord, would you help us in the renewal of our minds so that we can see you more fully and the Lord Jesus in the desirable light that he is and that he occupies. Lord, would you help us to repent of the ways in which we live unfaithful lives? Would you help us to hear and to heed the call to be consecrated, fully devoted to you, Lord, so that we can glorify you, so that you can bless in the ways you intend. In Jesus' name, amen.